Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show.
This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Stinky tofu, fermented shark, root beer. Is there something inherently revolting about these foods? Well, today we explore the complexities of disgust with clinical psychologist and curator Samuel West, who says his work at the Disgusting Food Museum has changed people's perspectives on what's disgusting and what's not. When I started working with the, this exhibit, you know, we, I'd be cutting up durian fruit to give people samples, and you know, I'm just like, it's just, it's it, the smell is overwhelming. But now, let's see, it's two months, three months later, I can't smell the bad in durian. It's 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 amazing, and I and I haven't tried to like durian. Also coming up, Dr. Aaron Carroll demystifies alcohol calories, and we learn how to build a better meatball in Belgium. But first, it's my interview with food writer and stylist Rebecca Pepler about her latest book, Aperitif, Cocktail Hour, The French Way. Rebecca, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to start with a dumb question. Your book is Aperitif, Cocktail Hour, The French Way. How is cocktail hour in France or Paris quite different than what it is here in America? Not a stupid question at all. Actually, quite a quite a great one. Um, so the main difference between cocktail or French way versus cocktail or American way is the type of spirits that are used. So in France, um, cocktail hour is actually the hour of apéro or of apéritif, and uh, it uses these usually low ABV, not super high in alcohol, and um, quite complex in flavor without the aim of getting you tipsy straight off the bat. While in America, we kind of think of, you know, we end our workday and we go have a martini or a Manhattan or a Negroni or something that is kind of hard spirit first. Here in France, it's more of a, you end your workday and begin your evening with something that opens your palate and opens the night and uh, doesn't necessarily make you forget everything that happened prior to that. (laughs) That's a good way of describing (laughs) it. Are any of these things you would drink after dinner, or these are all entirely for the aperitif hour before dinner? So I... I think that putting a hard and fast rule on when you should be drinking these things is um, is a little silly, mainly because what we talk about with aperitif is what we also talk about a lot with digestifs, which is bittering agents that either open your palate and your stomach or help settle your stomach at the end of a meal. And so I've been, I definitely like take out a bottle of my favorite pastis and set it on the table with ice and water at the end of a meal, yeah. and it ends the meal just as well as it starts it. Are, are, aren't your French friends just disgusted by that? I mean, <laughs> we, are you, typical American, right? I mean. Yes, 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 I know, thwarting all the rules. So let, let's do a few of the others quickly. Lele, you know, back in the 80s, I w- was in Paris for a few days, and I went to restaurant Olympe. And at the beginning, I ordered Lele, right? And mm-hmm. uh, the waiter came over with a large glass of milk because obviously I had mispronounced it um, and to the <laughs> horror of, of myself and everyone else in the small dining room. So Lele is not the milk. It is something else. What is it? How is it made? So Lele is a fortified wine. Brandy is infused with fruits and peels and barks. And then it is strained and blended with uh, local Bordeaux wines. So depending on which variety you're getting, it's going to be white, red, or rosé. And then aged and, uh, and then poured into a glass over ice and with a twist. And that's, that's your lele for you. Let's end with three really simple recipes for go-to aperitifs. Uh, 
There's mm-hmm. a bunch of them in the book, you know, white wine with a cucumber, basil, and ice, for example. But why don't you pick the three you think are the easiest ones for people to remember that you love? Yeah, well, I'm going to, I'm going to like find a way to um, circumvent only choosing three by choosing my first one as aperitif shots. So it's basically a bunch of different shot recipes that are like small encapsulated little cocktails that you take in one large sip. You could totally make them as like regular pour drinks, but honestly, I think that um, they're more fun to take as shots. Okay. The second one is um, there's a cocktail called the Miss Scarlet, and it's made with red verjus, which is made from unripened, unfermented wine grapes. Mm-hmm. But it adds this like high acid, super tart, almost citrus flavor without actually adding lemon or lime or orange to it. And so the Miss Scarlet combines red verjus with a sherry, simple syrup, some bitters, and a top of champagne. And and what's your third favorite? My third. You know, there's a uh, one aperitif that we didn't get to talk about, and that's picom. And it's it's a very classic French aperitif. It's actually not being imported to the States right now. So you do have to come to France. But it's like this like super thick, dark, molasses-colored aperitif that tastes like kind of bitter, burnt orange. And there's a cocktail in here that's like crazy simple. It's just picon beer, which is picon and beer. And you basically add a, I think it's a little under an ounce of picon and top it with a light beer, like a, you know, truly like a PBR or a Pilsner or something. And it basically takes a cheap beer and makes it delicious. You live in Paris and you've written this book about aperitif. Is there something you've learned, which one here in the States could copy maybe, about how the French like their aperitifs or how they use them socially or from a taste point of view, what what are some of the takeaways you think an American audience might want to hear about? Yeah, I think that the the biggest takeaway that I have is that what we talked about at the beginning, you know, the idea of not so much ending your workday with a drink, but rather starting your evening and gathering with people you love either out in a cafe or in your home and taking a cocktail or a drink that isn't going to change so much your mental state, but rather, you know, the experience of it will shift the way you enter your evening. You also use the term, which I loved, uh, I don't know if it, it translates into French. You said open the evening. Is that, is that a term in French? The root of aperitif actually comes from the Latin word that means to open. Oh. So it definitely, yes, it definitely comes into play in, in the deepest root of the, of the word. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was Rebecca Pepler, author of Aperitif, Cocktail Hour, The French Way. Right now, it's time to answer your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah's the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah Moulton, how are you? I'm good, and I'm ready to hear what people want to know. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Lee in Oregon. How can we help you? I was calling because I'm struggling with quick breads. I'd love to make... You know, pumpkin bread, zucchini bread, banana bread. But I feel like I have really inconsistent results. (laughs) Like when you cut into it halfway through, it's almost like it's sinking in the middle. 
and I can't figure out if it's my oven or something that I'm doing. Well, I need some help. We have about 36 questions for you, so <laughs> here we go. Um, <laughs> leaveners. Yeah, it's usually a mix of baking soda and baking powder, and then I use often use buttermilk in the mix. That's fine. And you know that your baking powder and baking soda are fresh? They haven't been around forever? Yes. So the buttermilk, are you switching something for buttermilk, like milk, or that's what the recipe calls for? That's what the recipes call for usually, yeah. And I really like buttermilk, so... Once the batter's made, do you put it in the oven right away, or is it sitting around? No, I put it in right away. Has your oven been calibrated? Do you know it's accurate? Um, I would say relatively. Sometimes I wonder if it's the pan. Well, are you using a light-colored pan, a dark-colored pan, a Pyrex pan? It's a dark-colored pan. Well, okay. Okay, I have a theory. Okay. Which is, it may be that with a dark pan, which absorbs heat, and maybe your oven's a little hot, the outside may be setting, and the sides may be setting before the interior is done. Is that possible? Of course it's possible. Correct. So well, I would. I feel like I, the outside is usually pretty good. It says I get closer to the center, and then yeah. I feel like when I pull out of the oven, I can't really tell. Okay, you want the inside to be cooked at the same time the outside is cooked. Right. And with a dark pan, you'll tend to get the outside cooked faster because it absorbs heat. Absorbs heat. So you might okay. go to a lighter, like Gold Touch pans. I use for quick breads, loaf pans. I like those a lot. Okay. okay. But reduce your oven. Because then the inside will be cooked by the time the rest of it's done. Or use a different kind of pan. Or try using a light-colored pan. But in any case, there's too much heat cooking the top and outside before the inside's cooked. Now, if I lower the temperature, I assume I cook it longer? Yes. Yes. But that's only if you continue using the same dark pan. I see. Okay, if if you it. switch okay. to the lighter colored pan, then I would say follow the timing of the recipe and the temperature of the recipe. So what happens when you stick a straw or a toothpick or something into the quick bread in the center? Does it come out clean um, or you just press the top? I usually touch the top. You know, I can kind of see when the cracks at the top of the bread if it seems I would moist. get those thin wooden dowels, not toothpicks. They're a little thicker and longer. You can buy them for almost nothing. Yeah, because you want to get all the way to the center. Stick it right in the yeah, middle okay. down in because what's probably happening is you're taking it out, but the center is still just un- needs a little longer. Unbaked. Right, so you just okay. may have to cook it a little bit longer. Again, I would suggest lower oven, but you just don't, you're under baking. Yeah. Okay. The inside. Got it. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you for calling. calling. Yeah. And yeah. good luck. Oh, well, thanks for your help. I yeah. really appreciate okay, it. Okay. We're rooting okay. for you. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Jim from Underhill, Vermont. How can we help you? I was actually hoping for a book recommendation. Um, I've heard you guys talk a lot about kind of food in historical context, and I would love to read like a comprehensive history of eating. Wow. Well, I just interviewed two people who wrote a book called A Bite-Sized History of France. Mm-hmm. which was actually quite good. It's a little dense. It's not the easiest read, but it had a lot of really interesting stuff about the salt wars in France because it was a commodity that was heavily taxed. And I would suggest that. Consider the Fork by B. Wilson. She's great. She's a really great writer. Also, I mean, for a food of Italy and France, Waverly Root yep. is a really good one. But you know what I wish everybody could find is the Time Life series, Foods of the World, They had a book for every region of the world, 
And then they had a little recipe book that went with it, and it gave you an overview, and then it gave you sort of the iconic recipes. And for a lot of countries, even though these books were written like 20, 30, 40, or more, 50 years ago, they still are pretty true and give the history and the custom of each country. So if you could go to your library or find a culinary library that had the Time Life Foods of the World series, there's 23, I think. They're fantastic books, and you can sort of take it one country at a time. There's also a whole series of books by Mark Kurlansky, uh, Salt, oh, yeah. Milk. He just did that. I just yes. interviewed him for the show. Cod was yeah. another book, yep. which was – Cod was absolutely fabulous. I think Cod is the best written food history book. It reads like a murder mystery. It's extremely well done. Mark Kurlansky. Kurlansky. He's a terrific writer. Yeah. Look him up in your bookstore on Amazon. I would say any of the books he's written about food history are just terrific. Fascinating. They're, they're fun I to agree. read. You know, you can sit down for a few hours and get through them. They're really good. All right. There well, you go. Thank you so much. This is really helpful. Okay, okay Jim. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Most Street Radio. Call us anytime with your kitchen questions at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at millstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Loretta calling. Hi, Loretta. We're... I'm so happy to be here. Hi. Uh, where are you calling from? I Right now, I'm calling from the Villages, Florida. And uh, what can we help you with today? I have a question that has really been stumping me. Um, my family, especially at holiday time, loves homemade cinnamon buns. And I started making these about about 40-some years ago. And I was just a beginner cook, and I just got really lucky with the topping. But all one day I made them, and instead of the topping, when I flipped them over out of the oven and expecting to see this lovely, I don't know, just wonderful topping, and I was so disappointed. And then I tried all kinds of things and could never have a consistent, good cinnamon roll come out of the oven. And so I stopped making them. And my family's protesting. So here I am. So the question is, what changed before you made the first disastrous version of sticky buns? Was the same oven, the same pan, anything different? To my best of my recollection, everything was the same. So you're heating the butter, the sugar, and the corn syrup over sort of low heat on top of the stove to begin with? Yes. And it's fully... Dissolved. Dissolved. It it wouldn't be granular, right? No, it wouldn't be granular. But something happens in the oven. Uh, Have you had any other problem with the oven in recent memory? No, I haven't. You're giving me all the wrong answers here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying, but... Here's here's the problem here. Tell us exactly what was in that topping. I know you've tried all sorts of solutions since then. I believe it was like three-quarters a cup of butter, three-quarters a cup of brown sugar, and about a quarter cup of corn syrup, something along that Pretty good memory. I mean, it came out right so many times when I first started making this. I have another question. Is there any chance that you used a different brand of sugar than you had the first time or the many other times? That could have been what happened. It was only brown sugar or was it also white sugar? No, it was like domino brown sugar. 
maybe when the time when it went wrong, maybe it was the store brand. Well, maybe that that is moisture in it. That is where I'm going with this because I understood about white sugar that sometimes yeah. the store brand is different and behaves differently than you know the Domino, the one that we're used to. So right. that's all I'm wondering is because everything else it's very mysterious. Yeah, you know, you know, I think yeah. it could be the brand. Of no, sugar. I think I think I agree too. Was the sugar perfectly soft? The brown sugar. Now I can't swear to that. Either. Yeah, because you know brown you sugar, know, as you know, dries, dries out. out quickly. So right. if the time you made it didn't come out, that sugar was not perfectly soft. That would also be a problem. Might have. And next time you make it, buy a fresh bag. Not yes. s- just open the bag for that recipe and see what happens. Yeah. Thank you so much for um, giving me your time. Pleasure. I'm going to try Pleasure. this, and I shall send an email and let you know how it. Yeah, uh, you should. Out. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. We Absolutely, Loretta. Ash, okay. Thanks. Thank you very much, Sarah yeah. and Christopher. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up, my interview with Samuel West, curator of the Disgusting Food Museum in Malmö, Sweden. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it you know I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like man this beer is good (laughs) there are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but... 
pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week. You deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milk Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. What is discussed and who gets to say what's revolting and what's not? Well, clinical psychologist and curator Samuel West founded the disgusting food museum in Malmö, Sweden, to reshape the way we think about this complex human emotion. Samuel, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. So we're discussing the disgusting food museum. Uh, Before we get going, just describe what that is and how many exhibits and give us a couple of examples. Uh, The Disgusting Food Museum is a collection of about 80 different foods from around the world. And each of the items have to be foods that actually exist. So it can't just be, you know, bacon-flavored bubblegum or other novelty things. And in one way or another, they're disgusting uh, or thought to be disgusting by some some group or some people. About a third of the uh, foods are real foods that we have to replenish every day or every week. Some are videos, some are plastic replicas. Some of the sort of highlights of the museum would be, one of them, one of my favorites is kazumasu. Right. It's a cheese from Sardinia, uh, Italy. And it's it's a pecorino cheese that they leave out in the barn to allow the cheese flies to lay their eggs in it. And then the larvae of this, of this, this fly starts eating the cheese and, and, and reproducing. So... You crack open the cheese and eat the living larvae, the excrement, which is sort of a soft cheese, and then whatever cheese is uneaten. So this is in Malmö, Sweden. Um, uh, the tickets uh, are vomit bags with a museum logo. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And some of these items, I, I just saw some of the samples. I've actually tried. Sir Strumming, which is that fermented herring in a can, mm-hmm. uh, we opened it at uh, about a year ago at Milk Street inside 
which was a Ooh, huge that's mistake. A big mistake. Yeah. We had to, everyone had to go out. It's. There. I mean, there's just something. It's one of the m- main reasons people gag or yeah. vomit at the museum. Uh, stinky tofu I've had in mm-hmm. Taiwan, but I I have to say it it tastes good. It, it smells awful though. It does smell awful, but some of these things like roasted guinea pigs from South America, uh, and durian, the famous stinky fruit from Thailand. There are many kinds, and some of which are actually pretty good. So here's my question. Are we really talking about it's always disgusting in flavor or is disgust a social concept? So the short answer is yes, disgust is can never be removed from the context. The long answer is that disgust is one of the six fundamental human emotions. So it's fundamental in that um, we all have it and universal in that regardless of culture or, or where you live and how you've grown up, you have that innate emotion. And the evolutionary function of disgust is to protect us from what could be harmful foods. So we have a natural reaction when something smells bad to go, mm, oh, and you get that disgust uh, feeling, um, which hopefully then helps you avoid those those foods. So in the evolution of, of our, in our evolution, we've added on all kinds of extra dimensions to disgust, such as moral disgust. Right. So if you think of a lying, corrupt politician, you can feel that sense of disgust towards a person or a person's lifestyle, which has nothing to do with the original function of disgust, which is fascinating. So in the Disgusting Food Museum, um, I'm making this number up, but I think it's about a fourth or a third of the foods are not disgusting on a smell, taste, um, or visual basis, but more on a moral basis, like foie gras. So it's interesting you you say that disgust was a survival instinct because it made you avoid foods that could kill you. But isn't disgust at this point mostly cultural? Definitely. Um, we We like the foods that we're familiar with, the foods that we've grown up with. So in the exhibit, we have root beer. Root beer is something that most Americans would say, wow, that's, that's good stuff. Right. Uh, however, outside of the States, people think it's disgusting. It tastes like mouthwash or toothpaste or somebody described it as a dental surgery gone wrong. <laughs> um, and, and so if you're not familiar with root beer, you haven't grown up with it, you more, most likely than not find it disgusting. Um, same thing with chicken feet. Like um, if you've grown up with chicken feet and it's, and it's good stuff and you eat it as a snack, then you, you enjoy it. Whereas if, you, if you're unfamiliar with it, you look at it and go, oh, that's yucky. I, I think some disgust, this is very interesting, some disgust is purely a thought concept, like Rocky mm. Mountain oysters. Uh, yeah. In, in Lebanon, for breakfast, you can get sautéed goat testicles, which are actually, yeah. if, if before they tell you what it is, you really it's like them. It's actually tasty. They're, they're lovely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's just the idea. So, so some disgust is just purely idea-based, right? Absolutely. Like you mentioned the kui, the uh, roasted guinea pig. Right. Um, Peru, Ecuador. They, I mean, the meat is delicious. The difference between eating pork or a piece of bacon from a regular pig or eating a roasted guinea pig, it's all in your head. There is um, no... If any, if anything, the guinea pig should be less disgusting. I, I've had roasted guinea pig in Ecuador. What did you think? I hated it. Was it in your head or did you no. actually hate the taste? You know why? Because there's not much meat on a guinea pig. So what no. you get is a lot no. of bone. It's very gnarly. 
and it's very fatty. It's fatty, yes. So a piece yes. of bacon, I'm sorry, a piece of bacon is just <laughs> infinitely better but than see, a See, that's what you would say. You're more familiar with eating bacon and pork. You're right. If I'd grown up in Ecuador, I'd probably love it. You know, I'm looking at part of the list, and it occurs to me that, like, the roasted guinea pig is a specialty in Ecuador, for example, right? And mm. stinky tofu in Taiwan is, you know, a specialty. Mm-hmm. Durian. I mean, these are things that are beloved, even well-aged shark, um, I guess, for some people in Iceland. These are things that at one time or another were highly prized and, and, and very much part of the local culture. So are, most, yes. are many of these things things that one culture uh, puts on a pedestal and loves, and the rest of the world just is scratching their head? Is, is that true? Yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty fair to say that's true, because if you've grown up with stinky tofu and you love eating it on this you know, street food in Taiwan, then you know, you're very well aware, it's called stinky tofu. <laughs> Um, you can smell it. <laughs> so it's no surprise that somebody doesn't like stinky tofu. Right. And same thing goes for durian. As much as anybody can like durian, I mean, it, 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 the, the fruit does smell. It has a pungent odor. Well, it, um, it smells like a septic tank. Yeah, It smells it's absolutely horrible. I have a little funny story about durian, though. Um, when I started working with the, this exhibit, you know, we, I'd be cutting up durian fruit to give people samples. And, you know, I'm just like, it's just, it's, it, the smell is overwhelming. But now, let's see, it's two months, three months later, I can't smell the bad in durian. Huh. I, it's, like, it's as if somebody just erased that negative reaction to durian. And now I can only smell the, the fruity aromas, the, the savory parts of, of, of the fruit. Um, it's, 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 it's amazing. And I, and I haven't tried to like durian. Well, here's what's going to happen in about five years. You're going to have a dinner party. Samuel West will have a dinner party, <laughs> and you'll start with some strumming. Then you'll have some yep. roasted guinea pigs and some fermented shark. And for dessert, you'll go on to durian, and you'll just be – the, the museum's going to change you. Right? That, that's what's... Well, it's already – sorry, I met my, my partner in this, Andreas. He, um, we talk about it all the time, how our perceptions of – food and what's good and what's bad actually changes because of the exhibit. And if you look historically, um, we have changed our conceptions of disgust. Um, there, I have two examples of that. One is the lobster, right. uh, which is also in the exhibit two, three hundred years ago right. uh, in, on the New England coast there. There were jillions um, of them. Yeah. yeah, and they were, they were con- considered food for prisoners and slaves. And, you know, in, in these, this period of time, lobsters become... Right. A luxury food. So lobster hasn't changed, but now we like to eat it in a nice restaurant with a glass of champagne. Same thing happened with sushi. It's it's only 30, 20, 30 years ago, no one in this, very few people in the States or in Europe would consider raw eating raw fish. Now it's on every street corner. Um, so we do change. We can change our ideas of what's good and bad food. So I go to Sweden, I go to Malmö, and I walk in the door of the disgusting food museum. What do I see? What's the experience like? Yeah, so first, of course, you get your ticket, which is a vomit bag. Um, I thought that was fun. And then you uh, wander through the exhibit and hopefully don't see it as a freak show of different uh, strange foods and take the time to read the texts and understand what it's about. And then hopefully when you're walking past some foods that you actually enjoy, you'll go, whoa, what's like, like I mentioned the root beer. Um, oh, whoa, what's, you know, what's that doing here? And then when you're done with checking out the exhibit, you go to the tasting bar and we have about eight or 10, whatever we happen to have in stock at the, at the moment, 
Um, you know, like a restaurant has the daily specials. <laughs> uh, we have the daily disgusting specials. So then you get to taste about 10 of the different d i f f e r e n t And which of those foods are most unpopular with or popular with your clientele? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, the, 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 the fermented shark, right. the Icelandic rotten shark, um, is the, probably the, the most disgusting thing at the tasting table. It tastes like, uh, I think it tastes like a, um, a mixture between ammonia and death. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it has a con- it, the that's consistency. Poetic. The consistency <laughs> is, and I stole this from somewhere, Uh, the consistency is a urine-infested mattress. <laughs> well, when someone said to go back to that for a moment, I did interview someone about this a year ago. They said that sharks reabsorb their urine. I think that's true. Yeah. There's, they, they live at great depths, and it's cold, and they have a slow metabolism. Um, they're caught as bycatch in the Icelandic fishing industry. So instead of throwing them away, they dig a hole in the ground, throw the shark in there, let it rot, and then... <clears throat> when, it's, when it's all nice and tasty, cut it up into little cubes. You have to wash it down with Icelandic uh, aquavit called brennevin, black death. <laughs> it's a whole menu here. <laughs> we, in, we don't offer the alcohol, so our poor guests at the museum have to wash it down with water. <laughs> uh, what, what, what's number two on the list of, of most hated food? Yeah, um, this, this won't be surprising for any American listeners, but... For the Swedes and, and Scandinavians, uh, this is surprising. We have uh, Swedish salty licorice. I love Swedish. So a, We actually, my wife buys bags of, of Swedish salty oh, licorice. We eat that at home. I love yep. it. And why is that not yeah, like? Yeah, because um, they, uh, it's, you know, it's got this ammonium chloride, I think it's called, the, uh, the, the, that gives the saltiness. It's like a crystallized powder. That, hmm. that coats the licorice. Yeah, I mean, my kids eat it, you know, right. it's candy. They eat it all the time. But if you try it for the first time, and most, that's, I, that's actually the number one reason people not vomit, but they spit out into their tickets, the vomit bags, when they try the salted licorice. And that, that's the root beer of Sweden. Right. And like, because everybody here loves it. But then they see it at the museum and they go, no, 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 that's good. I'm like, mm hmm. But somebody else likes spicy rabbit heads. You know. Yeah, I saw that photograph, uh, th- th- that and the, and the dead bat. <laughs> Just could you talk about the bat? The, the fruit yeah. bat. How, how's that prepared and served? Uh, it's uh, prepared in, in different Pacific island nations, but this is from Guam. They, they make a soup out of it, and apparently the soup is so tasty and the fruit bat is so tasty that the, the bat is almost, or at least it risked being, becoming extinct. Mm. So you've learned a lot about what people don't like. Uh, if you flip this around, have you learned something about what people do like? Is there some international preference for certain things or that, again, is, is highly cultural? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, I'm all focused on the disgust. I don't, give it, I don't give deliciousness much thought. One thing that's, and this is, this is universal, um, where... you tend to think of disgust and deliciousness as opposites on a line. Right, right. But it's not. So in any, any given culture, what's considered a delicacy, uh, luxury, you know, the best of the best food they have to offer, is often very close to what's also disgusting. So hmm. if we look at uh, oysters, oysters are considered you know, a delicacy. But a lot of people find oysters to be absolutely disgusting. Uh, truffles, 
delicious truffles. They're expensive, uh, wonderful <laughs> fungus. But um, a lot of people would say, no, it smells like stinky socks. Mm. So we tend to think of it like, okay, it's either disgusting or delicious, when in fact those two are very, very close together if you look at the actual foods in any culture. Samuel West, thank you so much uh, for joining us on Mill Street. Thank you. That was Samuel West, curator and chief disgustologist at the Disgusting Food Museum in Malmö, Sweden. Samuel West claims that disgusting is a relative term based on cultural experience. Grasshoppers in Oaxaca, for example, are an everyday snack that not eaten on a dare. But does that mean that some things are not inherently more mouthwatering than others? A French frise salad, for example, isn't that more appealing than raw testicles? Or isn't a perfectly cooked Argentinian steak more appealing than canned fermented fish from Sweden? My view is that familiarity and experience make some foods more edible to some cultures than others. But fermented shark, no matter where you grew up, is no cheeseburger. Coming up next, it's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, Belgian meatballs. Catherine, how are you? I'm good, Chris. You know, most of our travel overseas is what you'd expect. We go into someone's home, we cook with them, we bring a recipe back, uh, a bit of the culture as well, the history of the recipe. In this case, one of our editors who lives in Spain, his name is Albert, went to Belgium, and he ended up on a balcony throwing meatballs wrapped in foil to the crowd, which is part of a summer festival. What we realized was what was inside that foil was not an American meatball, it was a Belgian meatball, of course. But it's a totally different animal, totally different thing. So what is a Belgian meatball? Well, Chris, a Belgian meatball is a spiced meatball. So you're not going to be simmering it in tomato sauce. It has caraway breadcrumbs in it. It has allspice and nutmeg and dill. And then maybe most importantly, it's simmered in a sauce with Belgian beer and dried fruit. So this is sweet. It's savory. It's a little larger than the typical meatball. So how do you make it? Is it standard operating procedure or is it different? It is, Chris. So first you're going to mix together some of those caraway bread bits with milk. And then you mix in 50-50 pork and beef and then those seasonings that we talked about. You want to let them chill for 15 minutes to two hours, depending on how far ahead you're planning. And then after we brown them, we deglaze the pan with some onion and that beer. And then we add beef stock and prunes. And you simmer that down into a really viscous, like you said, sort of sweet, sour, little bit bitter sauce. That's really quite nice. So you use the term meatball and prune in the same <laughs> sentence, which I, our listeners just decided not to listen. But it actually, that sweet, savory combination is very Milk Street. I mean, it's really good. That's right. And I should yeah. back up, Chris. So traditionally, these are made with a concentrated fruit paste. We couldn't find that here. But by simmering those prunes in a little beef stock and blending it, we got a really similar flavor profile. Now, one other thing, when I tasted it, the texture is incredibly light. Meatballs can be tough. These are not tough. That's right. They're very light. In fact, Chris, when you're making these, you don't want to use tongs to move them in and out of the pan. You want to use a couple of spoons and be really delicate with them. So, Catherine, there you have it. It's a Belgian meatball. It's larger than what we're used to, but it's lighter as well, sweet, savory. It is delicious. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for Belgian meatballs and all of our recipes at 177milkstreet.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up, Dr. Aaron Carroll on the truth about calories in alcohol. That after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. 
When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Milk State Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for Sarah and I to answer your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Boom from Queens, New York. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you? Pretty good. Sarah? I'm very good. Just want to make sure she was still awake. That's I'm good. still here. Okay. How can we help you? I have a question about baking cakes with olive oil versus butter. I baked an orange blossom cake with olive oil, and I loved it. And I really like the texture, how moist it it's was. Better. And then yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> and then I baked a Meyer lemon bun cake. And it called for a pound of butter, so I tried swapping out half a pound of the butter for six tablespoons of olive oil, and then I bumped the baking powder up by half a teaspoon. It turned out great, um, but then it made me wonder, 
why don't you see more recipes that call for both oil and butter? Because I think some people really just love that flavor of butter. I think that's it. Well, that's actually an interesting question, though, because like carrot cake or other cakes like that use oil. Zucchini. And oil, as we all know, at room temperature is liquid and butter is solid. solid. And so oil-based cakes are moister at room temperature and will probably hold longer, too. Your question is if you used half butter and you you whip the butter, right, with eggs for your sugar? I whip the butter with sugar. sugar And then, yeah. I don't know. I think that's actually an excellent question. Well, I I, I have another question, too, if you don't mind interrupting. What does the butter do for a cake other than add flavor that, you know, oil and baking powder can't do? Well, if you do that creaming process, it's a form of aeration. So it provides a light texture. I think that's what else butter does. Unless it's melted butter. If you whip the butter with sugar, et cetera, you're just adding air. But what if I, you know, bump up the baking powder when I use oil? Does that kind of do what whipping butter does? Well, here's the thing. There's also the point of no return when you start tasting the baking powder, that horrible sort of metallic taste. Okay. I don't think you'd want to, particularly in the lemon one, take out all the butter. It sounds like you came up with the absolute right amount of butter and oil. Here's what we should do. We should all hang up, and we should call you and ask you, can we substitute (laughs) some of the butter with oil? You already figured it out. You called with an answer to that question. Yeah, you did. You did. Okay. (laughs) Here's the other thing. Oil is 100% fat, whereas butter is only 81 about, or so. yeah, about 80, somewhere in there, because it's got milk solids and um, water. So, you know, oil is fattier, which could, would also, you know, have something to do with why it makes things very moist. And also oil is lighter in texture than butter. It's an interesting dance here. Some cakes depend, like pound cakes, on whipping the butter, butter and sugar, sugar for aeration. And a traditional pound cake wouldn't use baking powder. Other cakes or things like brownies, one-layer cakes very often don't use whipped butter to aerate. So in any recipe that's not whipping the butter, I think you could substitute oil for the butter. Use slightly less oil than butter. That's what I would say. About three quarters. Yeah. Okay. And that would work. But if you're whipping the butter, I think what you did was absolutely right, which is reduce the butter by half and add slightly less than half again as much oil. Maybe increase the baking powder a little bit, which is what you did. Okay. So you should work for Milk <laughs> Street we'll because yes. <laughs> we yeah, need an you're opening. Good. Yeah, you're good. You you're good. good. Are you looking for someone? <laughs> I don't know. With that answer, that was pretty good. You yeah. just, I like the way you improvised. It came out perfectly twice. Yes, yeah. I know. Wow. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Thank you. That was excellent. All yeah. right. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Doc Zoe. I've been the previous caller, and I'm calling back to tell you how my changes to my chocolate cake went. Okay, then. First of all, tell us about the original cake, just to refresh our memories, and then tell us what happened after. Okay. I called you about my award-winning chocolate cheesecake, and I wanted to know if I could make it better by using buttermilk. Okay. And what terrible advice did we give you? (laughs) It wasn't terrible advice. (laughs) tried the buttermilk, and it was fine. It tasted the same. It just was denser. Now, wait a minute. I think we mentioned, though that because it's more acidic, you would have to change the leavener amounts. So did you use more baking soda? I did that, and I realized that I already reduced that in my recipe because I live on a mountain. Oh. And my recipe was originally at sea level, so I had changed the leavening 
for that. But I did change it again. It still was too dense. Okay. You know, sometimes if it isn't broken, you don't fix it. Oh, well, I agree. Well, we, yeah. yeah, I thoroughly agree. I'm so glad to hear from you again. And thank you for hearing from me again. It's always a pleasure to speak to you, too, because you're so knowledgeable and helpful. Thank, thank you, you for, for calling. calling, yeah. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. If you have a culinary mystery, give us a call at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Karen in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Are you serious? That is the name of a place? That is where we live. Yes, ma'am. Wow. Does that make you feel sort of uncertain every day? Well, it keeps us honest. <laughs> okay. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> All righty then. How can we help you today? I have these wonderful organically grown we raise pigs for consumption nice so i have these wonderful inch and a half thick pork chops with bone in and i don't want them to be dry i don't want to ruin them i'd like to heat a pan a saute pan up with olive oil get it nice and hot i would rub the pork first with my seasonings and if i quickly sear those pork chops in a port wine and then throw it into the oven at about, I would guess, 400 degrees, would that finish cooking it on the inside and I just don't want them to dry out? I do this with steaks or chops all the time. Start them in a 250 oven on a baking pan. And I like to salt them first, let them sit for an hour or half an hour if you can on both sides. Kosher salt, bring them up to maybe a hundred and 20, 115, something like that, and then finish them quickly in a skillet. So you sear last. And if you start that way, I find you get a lot of good taste development. You're sort of turbocharging the meat. It's sort of like letting it age. And then you finish with a sear at the end. If you sear at the beginning, then the outside will tend to get overcooked. Uh-huh. Sear it at the end. I do it in a dry skillet or just a little bit of oil and then finish if you want. Take the chops out and add the port wine and butter, et cetera, for a sauce. Right, Sarah? Right. Yeah. I was going to ask you if you brine them. And the simplest way to do it, you don't need a liquid brine, is to just salt them. I agree with Chris, like an hour ahead of time. That would be hands down the most important thing. My last question is now, if you want me to do the brine, yes, I can. But with my seasoning, my rub, my rosemary, would that be in the pan at the flashing or while it's in the 120 in the oven on it with the brine? I think even when you season it with the salt, you can put your seasoning mix on it at the same time because the salt will pull liquid out, the liquid will go back into the chop, and so will all the flavorings from your rub. Mm -hmm. So it will be more deeply seasoned. I've been waiting to cook this after speaking with you guys, so I'm really looking forward to it, and thank you. Our pleasure. Thanks for calling. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, Karen. Bye-bye. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up is Dr. Aaron Carroll, who takes a different approach to thinking about diet and health. Dr. Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm good. Uh, What's on your mind this week? I thought we might first talk about alcohol, and specifically we might talk about the calories in alcohol, because we usually spend too much time talking about, of course, the alcohol and alcohol. 
You know, I, I drink an old fashioned most nights and I once looked yeah. it up, but I can't remember what it said. <laughs> so maybe you can tell me. Well, it's worth it. I mean, this is, you know, it's amazing to me because I watch people who are, you know, concerned about weight and how much they are eating. But I'm always sort of fascinated how we give a pass sometimes to the calories in our beverages. And so the Center for Science and the Public Interest a couple months ago actually put out a piece where they were pretty rigorous in looking not only at just sort of standard levels of alcohol, but also what are in many of the alcoholic drinks that people might buy in restaurants. And so they started with light beer, which, you know, given the name, you'd hope is low in calories. And a lot of it, it is. You got, you know, at the bottom, I think you have Budweiser Select 55, which clocks in as at about what you would guess it to be 55 calories. But there are light beers, including Bud Light Lime, Michelob Light, Sam Adams Lake, that are 120 calories each. Huh. And you only need to drink a couple of those before you're getting into significant amount of calories. And if you go to fancy beers, I mean, if you have your Imperial IPAs or a Victory Golden Monkey, those can be 250 calories or more per beer. So again, if you have two of them, you're basically getting the calories of a Big Mac. And I'm amazed sometimes, again, that how I will watch people be very concerned about what they're eating and, and you know, who would absolutely shun the idea of having a fast food burger, but would have no trouble having two big beers at dinner. And, you know, wine, of course, has calories. Five-ounce glass of white wine is about 121 calories. Red's about 125. But again, that's only if you drink one, and that's only if you drink five ounces. So so let's get to bourbon, my favorite alcohol. How much is an ounce of bourbon? So straight-up liquor has fewer calories. If you have one-and-a-half-ounce drink of pretty much anything uh, straight, including bourbon, scotch, whiskey, gin, vodka, they're all generally you know, fewer than 100 calories. Uh, liqueurs will go a bit higher, up to 165. But, you know, of course, if you turn liquor into a mixed drink where you're throwing in simple syrup, as you would be for, uh, for an old-fashioned, then you're just you're adding calories. So, you know, it could be probably more, maybe 150-ish. Um, and again, if you're having one and you know what you're doing, that's fine. Uh, the problem is, of course, lots of people have more than one. It especially gets tricky with some drinks that, granted, I never knew existed. But if you go into a lot of chain restaurants and you order, uh, you know, one of their fancy drinks, you can get really up there. Chili's Ultimate Fresh Margarita has 270 calories. Red Lobster has something they call a Lobsterita, which I admit I've never had, but that's 410. And if you top it out, Red Robin has an Irish beer shake, which has Guinness, chocolate syrup, and whipped cream that'll top you out at 780 calories. You know, God forbid you have two of those. You've almost consumed your entire calorie count for the day. So a couple six ounces glasses of wine could be 250 calories. Easily. Uh, a premium beer could be 250 calories. Uh, so two beers for 500 and a mixed drink like an old-fashioned, maybe 150 or 60 calories. That sounds about right. And the real surprises are the specialty drinks at chain restaurants, right? I also would say, like, I, I put the caution out there, if you're drinking, you know, craft beers, they can be surprisingly high in calories, uh, much more so even than a mixed drink, uh, much more so than a glass of wine. And if you, you know, again, if you're, if you're just having two Imperial IPAs at dinner, uh, you could rack up, as much as, you know, a main course could be uh, for many people. So, you know, it's almost as if you're having an extra meal a day. So for people who are trying to watch what they eat and are concerned with how many calories they're consuming, uh, it's probably something they might want to reconsider. What is the standard number of calories people should consume? I think it's different for men and women. Is, is men 2,300 or 2,700? 
2700 would be on the high side, probably be lower, um, especially if you're trying to uh, be more conscious of, say, 2300 2200 And, of course, it, it is utterly dependent also on how big you are and what size you are. The idea that, you know, all men should be consuming the same number of calories is ridiculous. Uh, it depends how active you are. It depends um, what your weight is to begin with. Uh, but there are, you know, online calculators that can easily check that. Uh, for women, it's less. Um, you know, it could be 1500 It could be 1800 Again, it's very going to be size-dependent. When you say those numbers out loud, uh, you know, the number of calories you can get from a beer or two are significant. It's important when people are drinking not only to, to watch the alcohol, but also to think twice about the calories. Is it true that a calorie is a calorie? In other words, the counting calories is directly related to weight, or is it more complicated? I think it's more complicated than that, but there's still some truth to it. You know, very good, careful metabolic studies have shown uh, that you can figure out how many calories you're burning a day, and if the number of calories you consume is fewer than the number of calories you're burning, you're likely to lose weight. And if you do the opposite, you're likely to gain it. Well, see, there is something simple in the world of diets. <laughs> I mean, at some level, it is math. Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you. Uh, watch those craft beers and those fancy cocktails at the chain restaurants. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's the professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen every episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find each week's recipe, watch our TV show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, of course, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubal Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloth. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs> <laughs>